Friends, please stand for the reading of God's Word as we continue in our series that leads up to the triumphal entry, Good Friday, and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus on Easter Sunday. The passage before us is crucial, it's pivotal in the Gospel of Mark. It comes right after kind of um, the central question of the book, in a sense, who do you say that I am? And following the events of this passage, basically these two passages, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. Jesus begins to speak plainly to his disciples about what's to come. Central core passages to the Gospel of Mark. We're at the end of Mark 8, beginning verse 31, going through Mark chapter 9. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. And he, Jesus, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes, they became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and that they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Now, I want to clarify before I tell you this little story that Nate is not going anywhere. Okay, Nate is not going anywhere, but out of the blue this week, Nate shared with Chris Bennett and me an article listing a number of questions that pastoral search committees had shared with pastoral candidates, okay? To my knowledge, Nate is not looking anywhere. I don't think that he is. 
He shared it with us because these answers are priceless. They are humorous. Some of them are shocking. I promise you, they are real questions. Okay? The article listed 25, but I'm going to list the top 10 questions. And this was a survey done where the person who was asking wanted to know the most amazing questions you received while candidating for a minister job. Here's what some of those questions are. Quote, our last pastor preached for 18 minutes. Can you keep it under 20? You may resonate deeply with that. And if you were on the search committee, perhaps you would share that sentiment. Again, these are true questions. The salary is low, but we will pay you a commission for each new tithing family that joins the church. Will that work? It could, I guess. Number three, do you own a weapon? That's an interesting question. Number four, will you preach for a month and see how it goes? The candidate lived out of state. Number five, my personal favorite, what is the least amount we can pay you to come? Chris, did we ask you that question? I can't remember. Number six, do you mind if we have a Christmas tree in the pulpit? I'm not exactly sure about that. Number seven, do you let the singers hold the microphones themselves? Interesting. We've never let Jenna hold the microphone. I don't know. Maybe that's a relevant question. Number eight, have you ever held a rattlesnake? Interesting. Maybe Randy McCabe was on that committee. I don't know. Number nine, real question. Would you be willing to be on 24-7 call 365 days a year and will you be willing to work 120 hours a week? Wow. And then number 10. If you came here, we would want you to fire the youth minister. Would you be willing to do that? <laughs> Absolutely. I'd be willing to do it. No, just kidding. Nate did. He texted me yesterday a kind of a humorous question that he was asked. The conversation had an awkward turn. I just said to Nate, because Nate, you have never seen a more dedicated Denver Broncos fan, like obnoxiously so. So when we were interviewing Nate, we were having dinner at my house, and I was like, Nate, you know, can we go easy, easy on the Denver Broncos stuff? Could you ever find yourself rooting or supporting the Dallas Cowboys, he gave an unequivocal, no, never. <laughs> he still got the job. But I guess you thought that was a crazy question that gets asked sometimes. You know what they say, if you don't have something good to say or ask, don't say anything at all. I'm sure when looking back over the course of his life, the Apostle Peter wished he would have kept his mouth closed on a variety of occasions. I resonate with that. Our passage this morning includes one such, one such occasion, one such instance, when it would have been very good for Peter not to say or ask anything. Our passage this morning is very, very important. It is crucial to the Gospel of Mark. It is so important and so crucial that it is contained in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, 
all contain this important story. But do we really understand it? I submit to you that there is a whole lot more to the transfiguration than we understand when we just read it in our quiet times. For example, what did it really mean that Jesus was transfigured? What does it mean that he was transfigured and what are the implications? And why in the world do Moses and Elijah appear? Okay, what do they symbolize? Why were they there? Why did this event even happen in the first place? So many questions. But before we look at this passage, we have to do what we always do. We have to look at the context. Context is important. Context informs, and it certainly does so here. In order to understand the transfiguration, you have to understand what Mark included just before and what Mark concludes immediately after the transfiguration. Look with me at Mark 8, verse 31. This is the context of the transfiguration. This is what happens immediately before they go up to the mountain. And Jesus is transfigured. Before that, Mark 8, 31. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Notice verse 32. And he said this plainly. There is a shift now in the Gospel of Mark. It's the same in Matthew 16 and Luke 9. From this point on, Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. What was said in concealed ways, he's now speaking very plainly to his disciples. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then verses 34 through, 80, through 38 that I did not include in the scripture reading, Jesus says to the disciples, that's going to be true for you as well. You're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. It's going to cost your lives as well. So here we have, just before the transfiguration, Jesus is announcing to his disciples plainly and clearly that he's going to suffer and die, and three days later, he's going to rise. To which Peter responds by rebuking him and saying this is not going to happen, to which Jesus responds by rebuking Peter. Okay? That is the context of the transfiguration. That's what happens on the front end. Go to Mark 9, verse 9, in your bulletin, okay? Let's see what happens right after the transfiguration. Mark 9, verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until what? Until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves. What matter? The matter of this dying and rising to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And so here we are. After the transfiguration, he's talking about the same thing. So those two announcements, that he's going to die, that he's going to rise from the dead, they bracket, they bookend the transfiguration. You're supposed to have that in mind when you read the transfiguration account. It's essential. Okay, now go back to Mark 9, verses 2 and 3. 
After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And it's always interesting, like, why does he time stamp it after six days? That has meaning. Remember that. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach him. And so we, here we have Jesus and his three core disciples, Peter, James, and John, not going up just on any mountain, but how does Mark describe it? Up on a high mountain. Most likely, this is Mount Hermon, which is over 9,000 feet tall, the largest mountain in this whole area. Their tradition would say maybe it happened at Mount Tabor. But just in terms of curiosity, where should we imagine this happening in our mind's eye? Most likely it's Mount Hermon. Jesus has just been in Caesarea Philippi, which is north of Capernaum and just 20 miles away from Mount Hermon. So I just think this is a fascinating detail. He says that it's a high mountain, not just a normal mountain, a high mountain. Just 20 miles away from where Jesus had been was an incredibly high mountain, 9,000 feet tall, Mount Hermon. That's probably where this happened. Regardless of the place, what happened there? Verse 3, Mark tells us that Jesus was transfigured. Mark describes his clothes became radiant intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, how would Mark know this? Mark's not an apostle. Mark wasn't there. Mark's the very first of the synoptic gospels. How did Mark know? Where's Mark getting his information? We've talked about this before. Who's telling Mark this? Peter. We have it on very good sources that Mark got his information for the Gospel of Mark from none other than Peter himself. The Gospel of Mark is the memoir of Peter. In some ways, this is the Gospel of Peter written through Mark, Peter's interpreter and translator. This is coming from Peter, the clothes of Jesus. Like, imagine this in your mind's eye. What would it have looked like? His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. It's indicating like Jesus is glowing. He's glowing with a light and intensity that no one had ever seen. There's nothing we can compare it to from our perspective. Now, it does have biblical precedent. And what's so great? Why do we have three Gospels? This is not in my notes. This is just Stephanie wonder, uh, gets nervous sometimes when I do this. But... Um, why is it a benefit to have three Gospels? Because you have three different perspectives on the same event. Luke did not get his information simply from Peter. Luke had all kinds of sources. Matthew had his sources. He was one of the twelve. And so they each complement each other. They each are subtly different. In the parallel of this passage from Luke 9, we learn that as he was praying, Luke adds, the appearance of his face was altered. So it's not just his clothes. 
the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. What's amazing is Matthew tells us how his face was altered. Matthew writes, Jesus was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. What would that have looked like? Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as he was praying, Luke tells us. Luke tells us, the others, it's as he is praying, his face begins to shine like the sun. This is amazing. The English word transfigured comes from the Greek word metamorpho, which means literally to be changed in form. Jesus' form is changed. It happens while he is praying to his Father that this occurs. We don't have enough time today to explore all of the Old Testament connections, all of the Old Testament allusions that this passage harkens back to. I can't imagine how many times I read this passage before I understood or became aware that this event is alluding back to an amazing event in the Old Testament. Back in Exodus 33 and 34, it gives me goosebumps. Exodus 33 and 34. Moses has gone up to a high mountain with three people. Do you remember what Moses asked? The privilege that he asked for when he went up on a very high mountain, Mount Sinai. What did he ask? He said, God, show me your glory. God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. You'll see my glory. But he said, you cannot see my face. I want you to remember this. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by you, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, like a little indention in the rock. He would hide Moses there. And he says, then I will take my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. I will cover you with my hand until I have passed you by. After this indescribably marvelous experience, Moses gets the Ten Commandments and he comes down the mountain. Listen to how Moses describes it. When Moses came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. It was so awe-inspiring. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation, they came before him. And Moses talked with them. In other words, they saw his glory after coming down the high mountain. Verse 33, and when Moses had finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. Why did he put a veil over his face? He's come down from the mountain. His whole appearance, he is glowing with the glory of God. Aaron and the people are afraid. Moses calls them near. Moses talks to them. They're in his presence. They see the glory. Then he puts a veil over his face. Why did he put a veil over his face? Not to keep them from being scared, because by this point, 
They loved the glory of God. He put the veil over his face because he did not want them to see the glory fade. So he would put the veil over his face. He would be in the presence of God. He would glow again. He would come out. He would issue God's commandments. When the glory fade, faded, he would put the veil back on until he was with the Lord. Moses, Moses prayed to see God's glory on the mountain and his face shone with the glory of God. And so here we are, here we are, many years later on another high mountain and while Jesus is praying, his body transfigured, his body changed. But there's a difference. What's the difference? Moses was reflecting the glory of God. For Jesus, when he prayed, the glory of God came from within him. This glory was intrinsic to him. In a sense, like Isaiah tells us and what and whatnot, like if you saw Jesus, he was unremarkable. You would not have picked Jesus out as the Messiah if you put him in a lineup with other men. There was nothing about him that would distinguish him, that would set him apart until this moment when the glory of God began to shine through and crack through and show the disciples who they were in the presence of. It says that he was transfigured. It says that his face shone like the sun. His clothing was whiter than any cleaner could bleach it. What did they see? Words can't truly describe it. Mark wants you to see the connection. Mark wants you and me to see the connection between Jesus and what's happening with Moses on Mount Sinai. I mean, just look at all the connections. In both stories, main characters, they go up where? They go up on a high mountain. In both stories, the main character is accompanied by three people. Okay? Moses takes with him Joshua, Aaron, and Hur. Jesus takes with him Peter, James, and John. In both cases, a cloud covers the mountain. In both cases... God himself speaks from the cloud. Exodus 24, 16. Exodus 24, 16 reads, For six days the cloud covered the mountain. And after six days, on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses. In Matthew and Mark, the gospel writers are careful to tell us that this happened after how many days? After six days. In both stories, God's glory appears and Moses and Jesus are transfigured. Do you think the gospel writers were just smart enough to make all this up? Can you imagine the intricate connections with the Old Testament? And then there's more. Look at verse 4, Mark 9, 4. Out of nowhere, this is shocking. This is, without, this is without precedent. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. What in the world are Moses and Elijah doing there? Why those two? Why not David? Why not Solomon? Why not Daniel? Why not Jeremiah? Why Moses and Elijah? Is that just a coincidence? Of course not. Moses and Elijah, they represent 
all of the law, all of the prophets. They witnessed and summarized the entirety of the Old Covenant. Here you have the Old Covenant mediator in Moses and the greatest Old Testament prophet in Elijah summarizing the law and the prophets talking to Jesus who is the culmination of everything in the Old Covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses' ministry. Jesus is the final and greatest prophet. You could argue the entire Bible comes together in this one account. It's amazing. It continues. What were they talking about? Why were they there? Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke does. In Luke 9.31 we read, They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's what Luke says. They spoke of his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Okay? Remember what bracketed this account. What brackets this story? Jesus tells them that he's going to die and rise before. Jesus tells them that he's going to be raised for the dead afterward. Okay? What had Peter said? What did Peter say would not happen? You know, you will not die. This is not going to happen to you. Of course it was going to happen to him. What do you think they were talking about? His departure at Jerusalem. What was about to happen in the Passion Week. And of all the words that Luke could have chosen for the word departure, they were speaking about his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Do you know the Greek word that Luke chose? What's the Greek word for departure there? Exodus. The Greek says Jesus was speaking with them literally about his exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. In other words, everything that Moses did and led and the Passover of the Old Testament, the greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament was the exodus where God delivered his people from Pharaoh's slavery in Egypt is about to come to fulfillment in the true exodus with a capital E. Can you imagine all that is happening here? The entire Old Covenant like the baton, in a sense, being passed off to the true covenant mediator right here. It, it truly is astonishing. Moses and Elijah were sent by God the Father to discuss with Jesus his upcoming passion. No doubt to encourage him, to strengthen him, to prepare him for what was about to unfold and precious Peter, Peter did what Peter does. He just talks. You know, he just says the first thing that comes to mind. Look at verse 4. I mean, from Peter's standpoint, like just, I mean, again, I have to make a sports analogy. It's not in the notes. I just watched the final four last night. I'm sorry. It's like, you know, when they're talking about, you know, the Duke Carolina last game last night, and they talk about all the tradition that led up to that game and they show like Michael Jordan shot and all these things and all these heroes that you have from when you were a boy you know some of you can't appreciate this at all you're not interested at all but anyway how does that relate to this who would Peter James and John who would they have revered more than anyone else perhaps Moses and Elijah 
They had read about them, heard about them all their life. We don't know how they knew, but before them are Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. And Peter doesn't know what to do. Peter is totally overwhelmed, verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Can we make three tents? Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Like, how would Mark have known this? How would Mark have known that this was said? And how would Mark have known that Peter just blurted it out and didn't know what to say? Like, this is a little clue. This is a little insight. That, like, I'm sure Mark is saying to Peter, like, why did you say that? And Peter's like, I don't know. I was overwhelmed. Don't blame me. What would you have said if you were there? Verse 6. He did not know what to say. Why? They were terrified. They were totally overwhelmed by this event. Like, like these, these titanic figures that they had heard about and read about that were like celebrities with a capital C to them were standing in front of them with Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 6, he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. These are the marks of an eyewitness account. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. Like, do you think he's just interested in the weather? Do you think this is just like a meteorological, like, like, like detail? Absolutely not. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is more than a weather report. What is this cloud? Oh, this cloud has not been seen for many years. This is the Shekinah glory cloud. This is the glory cloud that protected God's people from the Egyptian army. This is the glory cloud that led God's people for 40 years in the wilderness. A cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. This is the glory cloud that enveloped the top of Sinai when Moses asked to see God's glory. This is the Shekinah glory cloud that enveloped the temple of the living God. That glory cloud is now here, enveloping the top of this mountain. And it is through this cloud that God delivered the message that Peter and his disciples needed to hear more than anything else. This is my beloved son. What was the message? Listen to him. What had Peter done just before this? He had rebuked Jesus for saying that he was going to die. Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. They go up on this mountain. What do you think Jesus was praying when he was transfigured? We don't know. We can't be certain. He was probably praying, Lord, show them my glory. Prepare them for what's coming ahead. And the Lord honored that prayer. And from that cloud, the Lord told them what they needed to hear. Stop talking. Stop speculating. Listen to him. You don't have to understand, Peter. You don't have to get it. You just have to trust. You just have to listen. Because I promise you, 
This made absolutely no sense to them. If we were there, Jesus could have told us, I'm going to suffer and die and be raised again, and it would go right over our head. It was inconceivable to the Jews that Messiah would suffer torture and death at the hands of the Romans. Inconceivable. And yet this was the beginning of their understanding. And if they learned nothing else from this, they needed to heed these words from God the Father. Listen to him. Look at their different response in verse 9 and following in Mark chapter 9. In the beginning, they hear this stuff about the death and resurrection. Peter rebukes him. Then they have this experience. They hear from God the Father. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son had risen from the dead. Did Peter rebuke him here? Nope. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. They didn't understand. They couldn't understand. But they were starting to listen. They were starting to trust. They didn't know how it would, it would unfold. But they were learning to trust the Lord Jesus. Peter wasn't the only one who didn't understand. I'm sure Moses didn't understand. Back in the day when Moses was told he would never go to the promised land. Do you remember where God took Moses to show Moses the beautiful land of Israel, a land that he would never be allowed to go into. Do you remember what he, the Mount, he took him up to Mount Pisgah. Also, we don't have time. You just, you ought at some time look up an article like just mountain theology in the Bible. Many scholars think that Eden, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 28, it calls the Garden of Eden, Eden that was on a high mountain. Scholars have seen how this, this river in Genesis, when it splits off into four, kind of the, the, the implicit message is that it's like that, that Eden's on a height and these rivers are flowing down. And Ezekiel 28 calls Eden this, this garden on the mountain of God. And then you have Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. We have this mountain right here. All of these connections from the Old Testament, I'm sure Moses didn't understand when he's standing on Mount Pisgah, the leader of God's people. How much did Moses sacrifice to follow the Lord? He sacrificed everything to follow the Lord. Imagine viewing the promised land if you're Moses, knowing you'll never get the chance to be there yourself. You can't see the true glory of God because no one can see the face of God and live. Well, guess what? Moses got to go to the promised land. Moses is here. He's in the promised land. Moses asked to see the glory of God. Did he see the glory of God? He saw the glory of God in the face of Christ. No one can see the face of God and live unless they see it in the face of Christ Jesus. And they saw it. And it was amazing. Here men see what Moses couldn't see in the Old Testament because it can only be seen in Jesus Christ. And one day, we will see it too. One day, 
with our glorified bodies, we will see the glory of God in the face of Christ and all of the things that we struggle with so mightily and fail to understand will come into focus and make sense. Like Peter, we don't have to understand everything. We just need to listen to Jesus. We just need to trust. We need to follow him. We need to trust in what he accomplished at Jerusalem. The true exodus. The capital E, exodus. And he accomplished something for us that eye has not seen and ear has not heard and everything that's foreshadowed in this mountain cannot compare to the glory we will experience with Christ forever and ever and ever. That's what this text means. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we, just, we don't have the time. We don't even really have the, the capacity to appreciate all of the threads of Scripture that are woven throughout the Old Testament that come together here, that intersect here. While Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah about the exodus that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Father, if we glean nothing else from this, help us to be a people that look to him and worship him and listen to him and love him all the days of our life. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen and amen.